0: You are listening to Do Justice, the podcast from Shining Waters Regional Council of the United Church of Canada. Hello and welcome to Do Justice, the podcast for Friday, November 27th. That was Amori starting us off with O come, O come, Emmanuel, a bit of a traditional start to the Advent season. My name is Brienne Swan. I use she and her pronouns, and I am Minister for Social and Ecological Justice with Shining Waters Regional Council, part of the United Church of Canada. I am recording from my office in what is now known as Toronto, Ontario, which has been a site of human activity for more than 15,000 years. This land is the territory of the Huron-Wendat and Petun First Nations, the Seneca, and most recently, the Mississaugas of the Credit River. The territory was the subject of the Dish with One Spoon Wampum Belt Covenant, an agreement between the Iroquois Confederacy and Confederacy of the Ojibwe and Allied Nations to peaceably share and care for the resources around the Great Lakes. Today, Toronto is still home to many Indigenous people from across Turtle Island, and I am grateful to have the opportunity to work in the community and on this territory. I am also mindful of broken covenants and the need to strive to make right with all our relations. Shining Waters Regional Council is also an affirming ministry within the United Church of Canada. What this means is that Shining Waters is explicit in its embrace and affirmation of those within queer communities lesbian, gay, straight, bisexual, transgendered, cisgendered, non-binary, two-spirit, and more, we are all of these things, and understand this diversity as a blessing. I would like to greet you all by wishing you a Happy New Year. This coming Sunday is the first Sunday in Advent and the first Sunday of the liturgical year, so I'm wishing you a happy new year, except that our texts this week aren't exactly happy. They are hopeful, in the kind of way that talking about the world ending is hopeful to those for whom the world is not safe or welcoming, but we will be talking about that in a little bit. Our scripture reading for today is Mark chapter 13, verses 24 through 37. I'll be speaking about my experience of being in relationship with prisoners on death row in the state of Texas, and we'll hear a prayer offered by my friend Romero Gonzalez, who is scheduled to be executed this coming spring. But the theme of this week is hope, so I promise we will get to the hope. We'll also be hearing words from the United Nations in honor of World AIDS Day coming up on December 1st. But first, here is The Sun Harmonic with their brand new single, To the Blue, from their upcoming album, Coast to Coast. You can find The Sun Harmonic at www.thesunharmonic.com or by going to our show notes.
1: You are discovering now That our time apart will drown into all the rivers you found, draining to the blue. You are just figuring out what our time together's about. Through all the words we share, flowing through.
0: But in those days, after that suffering, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near, at the very gates. Truly I tell you, this generation will not pass away until all these things have taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But about that day or hour, no one knows. Neither the angels in heaven, nor the son, but only the father. Beware. Keep alert. For you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his slaves in charge, each with his work and commands the doorkeeper to be on watch. Therefore, keep awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or at cock-crow or at dawn, or else he might find you asleep when he comes suddenly. And what I say to you, I say to all, keep awake. So we're here at the beginning of a new liturgical year, the beginning of a period of waiting for Christmas, the beginning of getting to hang out with our buddy Mark. But this passage, this dark, prophetic, and angsty text is actually situated towards the end of Jesus's ministry. We heard Jesus' instructions to his followers to keep awake, and very quickly, in the next chapter of Mark's story, we have the disciples who are supposed to be keeping watch, but cannot even stay awake for one hour. Perhaps a brief reintroduction to Mark might be helpful. Most scholars, nearly all scholars really, believe Mark was the first gospel to be written. It is the shortest and reads a bit like an action movie. There's a lot of traveling from place to place and events happening suddenly. And Jesus comes across at times as kind of snarky and frustrated with his followers. It could be why I like it so much. Mark was also written either immediately after or during the siege of Jerusalem by Roman forces in 70 CE. The siege resulted in the destruction of the Jewish temple. This is a really important thing to keep in mind, and I'm going to come back to it a bit later, because while Mark puts the prophetic words of the world being turned upside down into Jesus' mouth, this wasn't only something that was to come, It was something Mark's original audience would have been living through and experiencing. Last week, we heard me reading our gospel passage from outside the Huntsville Prison Unit in Texas. The Huntsville Unit, otherwise known as the Walls Unit, is the prison that carries out all of Texas's executions. Starting in the 1920s, this was done... With the electric chair. Since 1982, all Texas executions have been perpetrated via lethal injection. The thing I didn't mention last week is that I have friends who have died in that prison. To say they've died actually sounds a bit too passive. I have friends who were killed in that prison. I've written to and been in relationship with men who live on Texas's death row for a number of years. It all started in 2014. I was pregnant and unable to sleep, so not wanting to disturb my husband, I went out to our couch and started down a Google search wormhole. I'd read an article about a recent execution that had not gone as planned. I mean, it went as planned in that the man the state intended to kill was dead, but it took longer and with far more pain and probably the most important, more visual cues to the witnesses that the condemned man was suffering. I clicked and clicked And eventually, somehow, ended up on a website for prison pen pals. There was a section specifically for profiles of death row inmates. And I had never even considered that such a site existed. So I randomly started scrolling through ads. Most of them were for men looking to find romantic partners, asking specifically for women to write with them. Many of them professed their innocence and were looking for help with legal fees. I kept clicking and clicking. And then I came across the profile for Ramiro Gonzalez. I was struck by his profile picture, a warm and kind smile despite the tear and Playboy tattoos on his face he looked really, really young. But then I realized he was exactly the same age as me. We would have been in the same grade in school. In his pen pal ad, Romero said he was a practicing Christian, an artist, and yes, he was guilty of the crime for which he received a capital sentence. Guilty, and remorseful. Romero wasn't interested in any romantic relationships. He was just looking for a friend to write to. Now by this time, it was three in the morning, and I thought I should try and get some sleep. The next morning, though, I told my husband about my adventure on the internet. I think I'm going to write to him, I said over coffee. My husband simply shook his head as he replied, Of course you are. So I did. It was a short letter, introducing myself, telling a little bit about me, making it clear that I was married, happily married. But if he wanted to have a pen pal, and I didn't seem too boring, I'd like to get to know him. Ramiro wrote back, and we've been writing together ever since. Through letters, I learned more about him, his childhood, his adolescence. He'd been in prison since he was 18 years old. And I would think about how much of the world has changed since I was 18. I mean, we were still using MSN Messenger when I was 18. I would tell Romero about having video Skype calls with my parents, and that just about blew his mind. We became friends, very good friends. He calls me his sister. He laughs when I try to write in Spanish. I now know how to make moonshine from juice boxes and how to create a two-way communication device with an FM radio. In 2016, ten years after arriving on death row, Romero received an execution date. Soon after his court hearing, I received a letter asking if I would travel to Texas and be one of his witnesses at the execution. After talking it over with my husband, I said I would, and I booked a flight to Houston. Now, thankfully, the execution date was withdrawn. But I had everything already booked, so I decided I would still go and visit. I flew to Houston, rented a car, and drove out to Livingston, where all 209 death row inmates are housed. I went through security, the barbed wire fencing, and entered the visiting area. And as the guards went to get Romero... I paced around the visiting area, sort of half listening to the other inmates talking to their visitors, kids telling their father about a basketball game they'd won, pastors praying the Psalms from memory because they weren't allowed to bring in their Bible, Lovers sweet-talking over the crackling phones that look like they came straight out of 1965. And then they brought Romero out, and we spoke for four hours. I met with his lawyers, visited his family, got to know some of the activists who are doing really profound and sacred work. And I've returned two more times since that first meeting. I've written with some of Romero's friends, who then became my friends. And yes, some of them have been executed. When those executions go through, I find myself in a funk of rage and grief for a long time. There is so much to say about racism and scapegoating and all levels of injustice when it comes to the death penalty. But there are other episodes of this podcast, and we will go through all of that. But for now, we are still with Mark and Jesus and Advent and waiting and hope. Romero has a new execution date set for April 20th, 2021. Like Mark's original audience, Romero finds himself standing on a precipice of destruction, of his world ending, of his own premeditated death. But as we will hear in a few minutes, in Romero's own words, Despite the natural and human fear he is experiencing, Romero also holds an immense capacity for hope. Life in prison anywhere is hard. Life on death row even more so. Life on Texas's death row can be brutal. Solitary confinement almost all of the time. The only human touch one ever receives is putting on and taking off handcuffs. Food which, even if it was enough, is often inedible. These are the kind of conditions that make it seem like the sun being darkened and the powers of heaven shaking and everything turning upside down would be a good thing. The end of the world is only something to fear if the world is working out really well for you. If it's working out really well for you, but it won't if too much changes. For the residents of Jerusalem, the world as they knew it ending, not not just a change in leadership, but a whole upending of the way life functioned. That possibility was a source of hope and comfort. For Romero, he sees death as a chance to be closer to God, a chance to see his friends who have already traveled to the Walls unit and did not come back. As far as Romero's concerned, it's going to be high fives, beer, and Jesus. And that is a source of hope. It doesn't mean his death, if this execution goes through, is right or just, but finding and choosing hope is one of the few acts of agency available to him. It is a way to meet death somewhat on his own terms. In a space that not only creates, but feeds off of despair. Hope is a powerful form of resistance. It is a theme we see come up again and again through Scripture. It's as if we can read between the lines You may have control over my body, my livelihood, my movements, but you do not have control over my heart, my spirit, my love. Or my God. As we move through this Advent season, a time of waiting and preparation, I invite you to wonder along with me about hope in desperate times, hope when everything seems lost. Hope in the upending of the status quo. Hope in the coming Christ.
2: Father, I pray to you in my midnight hour, seeking your love, patience, wisdom, and presence. My walls have fallen, my spirit is exposed. I seek refuge in you, especially at this hour. Though my death be defeated, its hand is upon me. But in you, Father, There is light everlasting. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? A thousand may fall at my side, and then a thousand all around me. But I will fear nothing, for you are my mighty fortress, my strong tower. In my midnight hour, I see little light, if any light at all. Within me, a fire turns to embers and a heart full of doubt. Yet through you, Holy Spirit, I discover courage and a light to my path. In you, I can weather any storm. Create within me, Father, the heart of a mighty warrior fit for battle, yet humble and contrite before you as a child before his mother is my heart to stand steadfast in your love, knowing that life everlasting, life eternal, is death defeated. Fan the embers and ignite them full of holy fire. Fuel the fire with praise to his name. My God will come for me in the night, in a vision I see in a dream, with deliverance and prosperity for he is my portion my promise to be fulfilled
3: Thank you.
0: Come Thou Long, Expected Jesus, a traditional Advent hymn. And before that, we heard the words of Romero Gonzalez, narrated by Todd Catrivo. Now here are some remarks in honor of World AIDS Day by UNAIDS Executive Director, Winnie
4: Bayanima. Hello. World AIDS Day 2020 will be like no other. COVID-19 is threatening the progress the world has made in health and development over the past 20 years, including the gains we have made against HIV. Like all epidemics, COVID is widening the inequalities that already existed. Gender inequality, racial inequality, social and economic inequalities, we are becoming a more unequal world. But I am proud that over the past year, the HIV movement has mobilized to defend our progress, to protect people living with HIV and other vulnerable groups, and to push back the coronavirus. Whether campaigning for multi-month dispensing of HIV treatment, organizing home delivery of medicines, or providing financial assistance, food and shelter to at-risk groups, HIV activists and affected communities have again shown they are the mainstay of the HIV response. I salute you. It is the strength within communities, inspired by a shared responsibility to each other, that has contributed in great part to our victories over HIV. Today, we need that strength more than ever before to beat the colliding epidemics of HIV and COVID-19. Friends, in responding to COVID-19. The world cannot afford to make the same mistakes it made in the earlier years of the fight against HIV when millions in developing countries died waiting for treatment. Even today more than 12 million people are still waiting to get on HIV treatment and 1.7 million people became infected with HIV last year. And why? Because they could not access essential services. That's why UNAIDS has been a leading advocate for a people's vaccine against the coronavirus. Global problems need global solidarity. As the first two COVID vaccine candidates have proven effective and safe, There is hope that more vaccines will follow, but there are serious threats to ensuring equitable access. So we are calling on companies to openly share their technology and know-how and to waive their intellectual property rights so that the world can produce the successful vaccines to the huge scale and speed required to protect everyone. And so that we can get our global economy back on track. Our goal of ending the AIDS epidemic was already off track before COVID-19. We must put people first to get the AIDS response back on track. We must end the social injustices that put people at risk of getting HIV. There's no excuse for governments to not invest fully for universal access to health for everyone. Barriers such as upfront user fees must come down. Women and girls must have their human rights fully respected, their equality. The criminalization and marginalization of gay men, transgender people, sex workers and people who use drugs must stop. As we approach the end of 2020 the world is in a dangerous place and the months ahead will not be easy. Only global solidarity and shared responsibility will help us to beat the coronavirus and end the AIDS epidemic and guarantee the right to health for all people. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. We'll be back next week Advent 2, with special guest the Reverend Karen Orlandi. We'll be discussing her outreach work with the St. Catherine's street-involved population, as well as her tenacity in advocating for safe places to poop. But for now, take care of yourselves and your neighbors, and remember that we are all neighbors. We'll see you next week. This podcast is brought to you by Shining Waters Regional Council, an administrative grouping within the United Church of Canada. You can find us online at www.shiningwatersregionalcouncil.ca.